Welcome to this very special episode of the Shakespeare and Company podcast, released to celebrate Annie Ernaux winning the 2022 Nobel Prize in Literature. Annie visited the bookshop in October 2018, and it was my great honour to chat with her about the book that many critics and readers alike consider her masterpiece, The Years. The bookshop was packed for the event. Downstairs, upstairs, every nook and cranny and out onto the terrace. Readers came in their droves to hear this legend of French letters speak. Readers of every age, too, from those of Annie's generation who'd spent decades reading her books, to high school kids who'd discovered and fallen in love with her work as a set text on their curriculum. Concerned about precision, Annie chose to speak through an interpreter, and we were lucky enough to have the brilliant Alice Heathwood on hand for that. Enjoy. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. I just check before we kick off. Um, I can see the crowd stretching off to the horizon there. Just give me a little wave if you can hear me. Okay. And um, I think I have people upstairs as well. Can you hear me upstairs? Okay, we'll, we'll take that one on, uh, on trust. Um, we're honoured to welcome Annie Ernaux to Shakespeare and Company tonight to celebrate the English publication of The Years. Spanning 1941 to 2006, The Years is a biography of both a woman and a nation during an era of unprecedented social flux. It's a meditation on the nature of passing time, on memories, as well as the tools and media that shape them. Reflecting on the shifting aspirations of the post-war generation, the rights of women, social class, the impact of May 68, the rise of consumerism, and how such events do, or sometimes do not, impact upon the life of an individual, the years has been called a remembrance of things past for our age. Crisply, elegantly, and faithfully translated by Alison L. Strayer, for Anglophone readers keen to understand contemporary France, I can't think of a better, more compelling read than The Years. Born in 1940, Annie Ernaux grew up in Normandy, studied at Rouen University, and later taught at a secondary school. From 1977 to 2000, she was a professor at the Centre National d'Enseignement par Correspondance. Her books, in particular A Man's Place and A Woman's Story, have become contemporary classics. The Years won the Prix Renaudot in France in 2008 and the Premio Strega in Italy in 2016. In 2017, Annie Ernaux was awarded the Marguerite Yossena Prize for her life's work. We're also delighted to be joined for this celebration by several of the key protagonists in bringing Annie Ernaux to readers of English. The translator of The Years, Alison L. Strayer, Annie Ernaux's American publisher for around three decades, Dan Simon of Seven Stories Press, and Jacques Testard of Fitzcarraldo Editions, the UK publisher of The Years. This evening we'll conclude with a reflection upon this significant literary event. The Times Literary Supplement has called Annie Ernaux a major European writer, and Edouard Louis declared her the author of one of the most important oeuvres in French literature, adding, Annie Ernaux's work is as powerful as it is devastating, as subtle as it is seething. While writing about the years, while writing about the years, Emmanuel Carrère said, I must have read it three or four times since its publication even more impressed each time by its precision, its sweep, and, I can't think of any other word, its majesty, one of the few indisputably great books of contemporary literature. Please join me in welcoming Annie Ernaux to Shakespeare and Company. So we're going to begin tonight um, with a short reading or two short readings, rather. Um, first in French by Annie, then uh, in English by uh, Alison, uh, Annie's uh, translator. Um, to give you a little bit of context, this is uh, an extract that comes from the beginning of the book. Uh, so it takes place sometime in the, in the mid to late 40s, sometime in, in post-war France, um, when the... We can't really, if you know the book, we can't really say the narrator, but let's say the, the collective voice of the book is around six or seven years old. Merci. Dans la polyphonie bruyante des repas de fête, avant que surviennent les disputes et la fâcherie à mort, nous parvenons par bribes, entremêlés à celui de la guerre, l'autre grand récit, celui des origines. Des hommes et des femmes surgissaient, sans autre désignation parfois que leur titre de parenté. Père, grand-père, arrière-grand-mère réduisent à un trait de caractère une anecdote drôle ou tragique à la grippe espagnole, l'embolie ou le coup de pied de cheval qui les avait emportés. Des enfants qui n'avaient pas atteint notre âge, une cohorte de figures 
qu'on ne connaîtrait jamais. Se mettaient en place les fils d'une parenté difficile à débrouiller durant des années jusqu'à ce qu'enfin on puisse délimiter correctement les deux côtés et séparer ceux qui nous sont quelque chose par le sang de ceux qui ne nous sont rien. Récit familial et récit social, c'est tout un. Les voix des convives délimitaient les espaces de la jeunesse, la campagne et les fermes où, de mémoire perdue, les hommes avaient été commis et les filles servantes. L'usine où tous s'étaient rencontrés, fréquentés et mariés, les petits commerces où avaient accédé les plus ambitieux. Elle dessinait des histoires sans événements personnels autres que les naissances, les mariages et les deuils, sans voyage en dehors du régiment dans une lointaine ville de garnison, des existences occupées par le travail, sa dureté et son usure, les menaces de la boisson. L'école était un arrière-fond mythique, un bref âge d'or dont l'instituteur avait été le dieu rude avec sa règle en fer pour taper sur les doigts. Les voix transmettaient un héritage de pauvreté et de privation antérieure à la guerre et aux restrictions, plongeant dans une nuit immémoriale, dans le temps, dont elles égrenaient les plaisirs et les peines, les usages et les savoirs. Habiter une maison en terre battue porter des galoches, jouer avec une poupée de chiffon, laver le linge à la cendre de bois, accrocher à la chemise des enfants près du nombril un petit sac de tissu avec des gousses d'ail pour chasser les vers, obéir aux parents et recevoir des calottes. Il aurait fait beau répondre. Recenser les ignorances, tout l'inconnu et le jamais d'autrefois. Manger de la viande rouge, des oranges avoir la sécurité sociale, les allocations familiales et la retraite à 65 ans, partir en vacances, rappeler les fiertés, les grèves de 36, le Front populaire. Avant, l'ouvrier n'était pas compté. Nous, le petit monde, rassis pour le dessert, on restait à écouter les histoires lestes que dans le relâchement des fins de repas, l'Assemblée, oubliant les jeunes, les jeunes oreilles, ne retenait plus. Les chansons de la jeunesse des parents qui parlaient de Paris, des filles tombées au ruisseau, de gigolettes et de rôdeurs de barrières. Le grand rouquin, l'hirondelle du faubourg, du gris que l'on prend dans ses doigts et qu'on roule. Des romances de grande pitié et de passion, auxquelles la chanteuse, les yeux fermés, se donnait de tout son corps et qui faisait monter des larmes essuyées du coin de la serviette. À notre tour, nous avions le droit d'attendrir la tablée avec étoile des neiges. De main en main, passaient des photos brunies au dos tachées par tous les doigts qui les avaient tenues dans d'autres repas, mélange de café et de graisse fondue en une couleur indéfinissable. Dans les mariés raides et graves, les invités de la noce s'étageant sur plusieurs rangs le long d'un mur, on ne reconnaissait ni ses parents ni personne. Ce n'était pas soi non plus qu'on voyait dans le bébé de sexe indistinct à demi nu sur un coussin, mais quelqu'un d'autre, une créature appartenant à un temps muet et inaccessible. Au sortir de la guerre, dans la table sans fin des jours de fête, au milieu des rires et des exclamations, on prendra bien le temps de mourir, allez, la mémoire des autres nous plaçait dans le monde. And now in uh, English, we're reading her own translation, uh, Alison Elstraya. <coughs> From the polyphonic clangor of holiday meals before the quarrels began with eternal enmities sworn, another great story emerged in fragments intertwined with the one about war, the story of origins. Men and women began to appear, some nameless except for a kinship title, father, grandfather, great-grandmother, reduced to a character trait, a funny or tragic anecdote, the Spanish flu, the embolism, or a kick from a horse that carried them off, and children who hadn't lived to be our age, a multitude of characters we'd never know. Over years, and with no small effort, the tangled threads of family were unraveled, until at last the two sides could be clearly distinguished, the people who were something to us by blood from, from those who were nothing. Family narrative and social narrative are one and the same. 
the voices around the table mapped out the territories of youth, countrysides and farms where, for time immemorial, men had been hired hands and girls housemaids, the factory where they had been hired, sorry, the factory where they had all met, stepped out together and married, the small businesses to which the most ambitious had risen. They told stories that contained no personal detail except for births, weddings and funerals, no travel except to regiments in distant garrison towns, existences entirely filled by work, its harsh conditions, the perils of drink. School was a mythical backdrop, a brief golden age with the schoolmaster as its rough god, equipped with an iron ruler for the wrapping of knuckles. The voices imparted a legacy of poverty and deprivation that long predated the war and the restrictions. They plunged us into a timeless night, a bygone era, and rhymed off its pleasures and difficulties, its customs and practical wisdom. Living in a house with a dirt floor, wearing galoshes, playing with a rag doll, washing clothes in wood ash, sewing a little pouch of garlic inside children's nightshirts, near the navel, to rid them of worms. Obeying parents and getting boxed on the, ear the ears anyway. Just think if I'd given them lip. They drew up an inventory of ignorances, yesterday's unknowns and nevers. Red meat, oranges, social security, the family allowance, and retirement at 65. Vacations. They recalled the sources of pride, <clears throat> the strikes of 36, the popular front. Before that, the worker counted for nothing. We, the little people, back at the table for dessert, stayed to listen to the risky tales that in the atmosphere of postprandial ease, the assembly ceased to hold in check, forgetting young ears. Songs of the parents' youth told of Paris and girls who fell below their station, gigolos and gigolettes, hoodlums who lurked at the city gates, le grand rouquin, l'hirondelle du faubourg, du gris que l'on prend dans ses doigts et qu'on roule, songs of passion and pathos, to which the singer, eyes closed, gave her entire body, and all around the table, tears were dabbed away with the corners of napkins. Then it was our turn to melt the company's hearts with étoile des neiges. Darkened photos passed from hand to hand, the backs soiled by all the other fingers that had handled them at other meals. Coffee and fat dissolved into an indefinable hue. No one recognized their parents, or anyone come to that. In the stiff and somber newlyweds, the wedding guest in, guests in tiered rows along the wall. Nor did one see oneself in the half-naked baby of indistinct sex, who sat on a cushion, an alien creature from a mute and inaccessible time. After the war at the never-ending table of holiday meals, amidst the laughter and exclamations, our time will come soon enough, let's enjoy it while it lasts. Other people's memories gave us a place in the world. Thank you so much. The... Um at the moment, you write, the voices of the guests flowed together to compose the great narrative of collective events. When composing this great narrative, um, a writer has a choice to use a, a general term, the, in French it would be the, the on, the nous, to use a personal term, either the first person I or the third person she. In fact, you choose to use two of those, the, the general, the, the on, the nous, but also the she. Why was it important to you when writing this grand narrative to employ both voices? C'est um, venu au, en fait assez, assez vite que je ne voulais surtout pas utiliser la première personne, le « jeu Et que, euh, parce que, euh, 
C'est un livre que j'ai mûri pendant de très longues années et, euh, et, et qui est parti de, de, de cette certitude que c'est une vie de femme, euh, donc en l'occurrence la mienne, ne pouvait pas euh, se raconter euh, elle seule en partant de, de mes événements à moi, de mon histoire à moi et de mettre le monde par, de surcroît. Est-ce que je m'arrête pour qu'on traduise ou... oui. <laughs> Elle dit oui. So the choice came fairly quickly. Um, when I started to write the book, I knew that I didn't want to use um, the first person, the I, the, the je, um, because it's a, it's a book that I um, I'd been thinking about and sort of been maturing for a long time. And I knew with certainty that... Um, Um, uh, the story um, of a woman, a woman's story, my story, couldn't be told um, just without the, um, the surrounding history, that we couldn't have the history as a sort of optional extra. Lorsque je considérais euh, ma, ma vie à ce moment-là, si je puis dire, je n'avais que 45 ans euh, et euh, c'est le moment où j'ai voulu commencer d'écrire les années et euh, je voyais que c'était, quand je la considérais cette vie, je voyais qu'elle était intimement euh, liée euh, à une génération. Euh, sans doute parce que je fais partie euh, justement d'une génération qui a connu euh, de manière complètement euh, folle, presque exceptionnelle, des changements euh, que, qui n'avaient jamais eu lieu auparavant. Je parle vraiment des femmes là. Et, euh, et c'est ça qui euh, rendait complètement impossible de, de, de raconter comme il est habituel dans l'autobiographie, de dire « je » et de parler du monde. C'était les deux ensemble. Il fallait absolument que, euh, je, que je mêle les deux. Et même à un moment, j'ai pensé qu'il n'y aurait même pas de « elle », qu'il n'y aurait même pas de « elle ». Ce serait « on, nous, euh, continuellement ». When I thought about my life, at the time that I wanted to start writing, I was um, 45. And when I looked back, um, I realized that um, I, my story was very much part of my generation story. And it's a, um, a generation that has known so many great changes. Um, so many things happened that had never happened before. Um, and I'm really talking about for women here as well. Um, so I felt it was totally impossible to use the word I. In fact, at one point, I thought about only using the nous and the on, the we. I suppose then the next question is concerning why you decided to write it when you did. You said you'd been thinking about it for a long time. The book had been maturing for a long time. And it seemed to represent a certain a generation, a certain narrative arc. So what was it in 2006, when you started writing the book, that made you think that that was the moment? Had, had something come to an end? Had, were, we, were we in a transitional period into a new generation and a new world? Donc, je, je, en, en fait, j'ai commencé les, les premières phrases du livre euh, qui sont, vous voyez, j'ai déjà un peu oublié. Toutes les images disparaîtront. Euh, et, et plusieurs donc, de ces images que j'évoque au début du livre, ça date exactement de 1985. Euh, et donc, c'est la toute première idée du livre. Et ensuite, je vais réfléchir euh, réfléchir beaucoup et tourner autour de, de ce texte mais j'écrirai d'autres d'autres textes euh, entre temps pour une raison aussi qui est liée euh, vous avez évoqué que j'étais professeur au centre national d'enseignement de, à distance et j'avais des cours à préparer euh, et, et disons que euh, les des textes enfin sur, écrire sur le long terme euh, était pour moi difficile donc, euh, je commencerai vraiment de m'y mettre lorsque eh bien, je serai à la retraite. Voilà, <rire> en 2000. 
Um, actually, the the um, it's interesting you say that the first sentence in the book uh, I've already started to forget. So it's, uh, all images will disappear. All the images will disappear. Images will disappear. <laughs> and um, so um, a lot of the images actually when I first started writing the book were from um, 1985 exactly, and. Um, uh, I have actually written. I actually started to write other other texts in between time. It was very difficult for me to um, consecrate myself in long term to writing. Um, and one of the reasons is what you mentioned before that I was um, a teacher. So actually, um, I really started to write the book in 2000 when I retired. Let's um, dwell on that first line. Um, all the images will disappear. It's um, it's a line which has a an immediate impact on the reader uh, because it evokes, at least it evoked for me, the, the realization and the confrontation with, with death. Um, there's also a, another moment where you talk about everything being erased in a second and vanishing into the vast anonymity of a distant generation. Was the book in some sense, a, a reaction against this, um, the reality of the, the human condition, the, reality, the, the desire to persist uh, in history, to persist in the world when all images and all memories and all existence is finished. Oui, peut-être, peut-être, Dois-je donner un élément, un élément biographique qui apparaît d'ailleurs dans le livre, mais lorsque j'écris, lorsque j'écris les lignes que vous venez d'évoquer, c'est-à-dire que je ne serai plus qu'un nom dans une lointaine, sans visage, dans une lointaine génération, à ce moment-là et sans le savoir, j'ai été atteinte d'un cancer du sein et qui, déclaré, enfin, qui a été euh, détecté euh, vraiment très peu de temps après. Et euh, je, je pense qu'il y, y avait quelque chose qui m'a poussé, euh, poussé à, à, à persévérer dans, dans, dans ce texte qui, pendant plusieurs mois, presque, presque, bon, presque un an, c'est la durée d'un traitement euh, d'un cancer du sein euh, et en qui se termine heureusement. Et, mais euh, pendant cette année-là, j'ai beaucoup écrit euh, ce livre. Et je crois que... Je pense que c'était effectivement une façon de, de lutter contre, contre le temps. Euh, le temps et la mort. Euh, cela dit, je m'aperçois que dans, dans ce que j'écris, le, le temps euh, compte, compte énormément. Euh, et, et au fond... Euh, les années, c'est évidemment la, le titre qui évoque le temps, mais le personnage principal de ce livre, je crois que c'est le temps. Um, yes, maybe. Uh, I'm just to, to give a, um, an element, a biographical detail, um, and it, it's uh, mentioned in the book. Um, when I wrote the lines that you just read. Um, I was um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer very short time after I wrote those um, lines, and so I think there was something that was that was pushing me to persevere with this text, and um, I, I uh, for a long time, several months, a year, the time um, that I was being treated for the cancer, which I had a happy um, happy outcome, um, I I wrote a lot during that time and I do think it was a way of, of fighting against time and fighting against mm -hmm. death um, but in a way I've, I've, I've realized that in my writing time is very important and I think with the years obviously as even the title evokes time and I really think that time is the main character in my book. I think that's, um, that's that sense of time was something that really strikes the reader um, the way you handle time is completely unlike, I think, for me, any other writer I've come across. Um, I think in literature we tend to, particularly when we look back, 
we tend to regularize time, to give everything more or less the, the same rhythm in, uh, in representation. Whereas one of the very striking things about the years is uh, there are moments when time expands, when time contracts, when time acts in deeply unusual ways, um, which we all live through, but is very rarely committed to, to paper. So what I would like to ask is, was, there, was it a challenge for you as a writer to resist the conventional ways of representing time in your writing and to, to represent it authentically as you remembered it and as you had experienced it? Je ne pense pas que j'ai eu à lutter pour, contre, une, contre une manière conventionnelle. J'ai instantanément ressenti cette façon d'écrire le temps de cette façon-là. C'est-à-dire, à chaque fois, de m'immerger, d'être dans ce temps-là, avec de le temps que j'avais choisi, donc... Il y aura les années 50, les années 60, 68, et de euh, rassembler euh, tous les... En, en fait, d'essayer de retrouver, de, vraiment, de, moi, de retrouver euh, ce que faisait la saveur, la couleur de, 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 ces, de ce temps-là, de ces années-là, et avec, bien sûr, des, beaucoup de souvenirs personnels, des images, mais aussi des, euh, des choses collectives, bien sûr, donc euh, politiques, euh, des faits divers, euh, des chansons, euh, tout ce qui, euh, à chaque fois, c'est une sorte... Euh, une sorte d'assaise, quelque part, de, 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 de rupture avec le présent, tout à fait, euh, de rupture avec le présent et d'immersion euh, dans, dans tous ces détails, dans toute cette... Et, et euh, c'est la seule façon, pour moi, de retrouver le temps. Euh, je ne sais pas quelle est... Euh, enfin, je ne me suis pas posé la question une, pour une autre, une autre façon. Et euh, le... Bon, peut-être que vous aurez d'autres questions après. <rire> Uh, no, I don't think I really had to fight against a particular convention. I, it, it came very spontaneously. I instantly knew that I wanted to write in that way. Um, each time I wanted to go to a, that particular time, the time that I chose to write about, so there was the, the 50s, the 60s, 68, um, uh, I really wanted to go back and find the, the, real, the taste and the color um, of, the, of that time, of those years. Um, and there are personal memories, there are images, but there are also collective memories. So um, political um, events, uh, news events, um, uh, songs, and um, <coughs> it really is a sort of um, break with the present. And I really wanted to really immerse the reader in that time. And it was, it's really the only way I know how to write about time. When you were recalling these, um, these moments, when you were... Um, remembering the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Um, throughout the book, you use photos as, um, as aide-memoire. Um, and, well, photos and later in the book, films, and later in the book, video cassettes. And it's interesting to me to, to hear your thoughts about how these objects affect the memories themselves. Um, how they, in, in looking at the photos that you used as a way back, as a way to access these memories, did you have a sense that those, the existence of those photos throughout your life, their presence, had changed the memories themselves? C'est vraiment une question euh, que je vais mettre tout à fait au clair. Euh, les photos n'ont aucun rapport avec mes souvenirs. Euh, les photos sont là. Euh, les photos sont là pour euh, introduire euh, dans un récit qui est euh, généraliste, qui est collectif, euh, une, une, une personne, une, une, une fille qui deviendra une femme, une femme plus âgée. Euh, au, au départ, je n'avais pas prévu du tout de mettre de photos. Et euh, j'ai senti comme... Euh, euh, comme quelque chose qui devenait impersonnel et, et 
trop impersonnel, trop froid. Donc il fallait... Euh, et, et la photo m'est apparue comme un moyen d'introduire une présence. Et, euh, et, et ça s'est avéré euh, quelque chose aussi de porteur pour lier avec l'époque, la façon dont euh, la petite fille est habillée euh, euh, et également, euh, pour, ça sera très important pour le milieu social à un moment, pour signifier beaucoup de choses. Et de plus, alors ça c'est autre chose, c'est que j'ai attaché à la photo... Là, vous avez raison, euh, c'est-à-dire des souvenirs, mais ça a été un moyen de euh, ce qui se passe toujours, euh, en fond, notre, notre être, nous, avons une, nous vivons dans le présent, nous avons le, le passé, euh, notre mémoire, mais nous avons aussi une vision de l'avenir. Et donc, à chaque fois, c'était un arrêt, l'arrêt sur photo est un arrêt euh, qui permet euh, un retour sur des, bon, des souvenirs euh, de, de la mémoire et puis euh, le présent aussi, de décrire le présent, mais aussi comment il voit l'avenir. Et ça, ça c'était le challenge en quelque sorte parce que euh, d'essayer comment à, à 12 ans, par exemple, on voit son avenir, comment à, à 16, comment à 30 et à chaque fois donc... Là, euh, bien sûr, c'est un gros travail, euh, je veux dire, voilà. Mais euh, c'est ça, et donc ça n'a pas, euh, ça, ça, ça pas de rapport, si vous voulez, avec le reste du récit. Um, I'm going to give you a very, very clear response to this question. The photos have absolutely no relation to my memory. Um, it's... I realized um, as I was writing the book that um, it was becoming too um, too impersonal, too cold. So the photos are a way to introduce into the narrative a person, uh, a girl who becomes a woman. Um, and I, the photo in, is is a way to to have her presence in the book. Um, so they. I think it's also a way to anchor um, the story in time. So the, the way that the people in the photo are, um, are dressed, or the little girl is dressed, it also um, represents some um, the sort of their social um, and economic background. Um, and also, um, the photos, um, they do attach to a memory. But when you have a memory, um, people are, they're in, they're, you, have, you live in the present. Um, and you have your past, but it's you also um, obviously a look to the future. So it was a, um, a lot of um, work, a lot of effort to go back to the photos and and say not only you know what was the present of the girl who was twelve, the girl who was sixteen, etc., but how she saw the future that was to come. And this um, this question of. Um, how we see the future to come. And I think particularly in the, the period covered by the years, how girls and women saw the future is, um, is very crucial to the, to the book and also presents um, a certain paradox because there are plenty of movements and there are plenty of advances and there are inventions like the, the contraceptive pill um, And yet at the same time, later on in the book, you write, we no longer knew if the women's revolution really happened. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm curious to know um, now, looking back, um, and particularly with the context we're living in with this uh, very vocal and very present women's movement, the, the so-called Me Too movement, do you think the... Um, how to put it? That there is a... Uh, what, essentially, what is your opinion about the women's rev revolution now? Do you <laughs> are you more convinced it has happened or not? Okay. Um, oui, euh, je pense que j'ai terminé mon livre donc euh, en, en fin euh, j'ai terminé fin 2007 hein, et euh, je, effectivement je pensais très très fortement que la révolution des femmes n'avait vraiment pas eu lieu. Il y avait un retour à des visions tout à fait traditionnelles de la femme. On disait que les féministes... Féministe, c'était un gros mot, hein, vraiment. On dit ça en plaisantant maintenant, mais c'est vrai, c'était vraiment ça. Et je pense qu'effectivement, depuis dix ans, euh, 
Et euh, il y a eu, euh, parce que euh, le mouvement MeToo, euh, c'est bon, euh, il a l'air de, de surgir ainsi comme ça, euh, brutalement de nulle part, mais ça n'est pas vrai. Je pense qu'il y a dans la génération euh, donc, euh, de, de, des filles qui ont eu, qui avaient, euh, bon, mettons, euh, 20, ans, 20 ans en 2010, euh, et bien, c'est, voilà, c'est même, même, même plus jeune, ont eu un regard, ont eu une attitude et un regard donc sur le, euh, les, la façon, enfin, la, la, la virilité, les privilèges masculins qui, euh, qui, qui changeaient qui vraiment changeait et, et voilà il s'est produit bien sûr là par une conjonction bien sûr de, de hasard mais euh, je dois dire que euh, l'année dernière donc quand j'ai puisque ça fait un an à peu près euh, c'était euh, vraiment la, la une, une, une très grande heureuse surprise et, et vous savez quelques quelques mois ou années je sais plus peut-être deux, deux ans auparavant euh, j'avais noté comme ça euh, dans mon journal je crois que je mourrais sans avoir vu la révolution des femmes bon elle n'est pas forcément accomplie mais disons qu'il y a un pas qui a été franchi euh, l'année dernière et qui, qui se poursuit voilà So, yes, I finished the book at the in, in end um, uh, 2007. And at that time, I really thought um, that um, the women's revolution had not taken place, that there had even been um, a sort of backwards movement towards a very um, traditional vision of women. And, um, I mean, f feminist was, uh, was a bad word that you couldn't use. But I think maybe um, that's been changing since about d 10 years ago. Uh, Me Too seemed to come out of nowhere, but that's not true. I think the generation of women who uh, maybe in t 2010 were, were 20 or younger, they really have a different attitude um, to um, virility and to um, male privilege. And so, so things have changed. And I think, it, you know, obviously Me Too comes about with sort of um, um, as an element of... Um, Of, of randomness with the um, at the news events, etc. But um, I think it, it was coming last year when it when it all um, happened because um, it's been about a year now. Um, I think it was it was a really wonderful ha happy surprise for me, and um, uh, I I I wrote. I remember writing and months or, or maybe a year beforehand in my um, diary. I think I will die without having seen the women's revolution. And now um, I don't know that it's not finished yet, <laughs> but I think there's been a lot of positive progress. With, I guess, with all um, social movements, there whenever there's an advance, there's always the the fear that there will be a retreat or that the results won't be what one hopes they will be or what one expects they will be. Um, in the years, uh, 1968, May, the events of May 1968, uh, a pivotal moment um, for, the, for the society and for the, 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 the collective voice um, in the book. But quite quickly afterwards, we see not exactly the, the, the rejection of many of the declarations that were made at that time, but their absorption into perhaps this, uh, this view of consumerism, uh, the, capitalist, uh, the capitalist worldview. Um, do you consider May 1968, despite having, uh, occupying a uh, pivotal role in the book, Something of a disappointment. Ce qu'il faut comprendre, c'est que il y a eu, il y a eu pendant quand même quelques années après 68, une forme de, de, de. Bon, il y a eu la libération, mais et en même temps une sorte de d'optimisme, de d'absence, je dirais d'absence de de peur. Euh, de peur de l'avenir qui c'est tout le contraire maintenant c'est tout le contraire maintenant et ça il y a eu effectivement euh, c'était très très sensible dans toutes les je pense dans toutes les couches de la société et euh, peu à peu tout cela s'est euh, refermé éteint 
euh, donc effectivement, une, euh, ça s'est réveillé en 1980 avec l'élection de François Mitterrand et euh, très vite, euh, dans, les années, euh, dans les années 80, euh, ces années, ces années euh, euh, vraiment de, 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 euh, tristes, voilà, donc de, de, euh, du libéralisme triomphant. Euh, mais bon, ça c'est euh, mondial, mais euh, je dirais que, euh, oui, euh, le consumérisme, euh, il était, oui, il est, il, est, il, est, il est venu en même temps, dans les, après, en même temps que 68 à peu près, c'est-à-dire qu'effectivement, je crois que j'écris que, que le, le, ça se convertissait, euh, voilà, l'idéal de 68 se convertissait en bien de consommation, pour la plupart, oui. Euh, je pense que effectivement il y a, euh, il y a eu ce, 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 cet appétit de, 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 des, des choses, mais euh, notez que dans, dans mon livre, euh, c est, c est, je ne condamne pas. Le, je, je veux dire, euh, le livre n'est pas fait pour être un jugement sur l'histoire. Hein. C'est pas un jugement sur l'histoire. C'est comment l'histoire nous a traversés. Et d'abord, moi, m'a traversée au premier chef. Mais comment, nous, elle nous a traversés euh, Il n'y a pas de... Alors, bien sûr, on voit bien quand même des préférences euh, politiques. Mais, mais ce n'est pas, pas de, de juger. I think you have to understand that um, in the the following the years following um, 68, there were in fact there was in fact a sort of liberation optimism. There was a lack of fear, a lack of fear of the future. Um, and now I think things are basically the opposite. Um, and it really was something that was felt across all different levels of society. And now that's it's it's closed off. It's switched off. Um, there was a sort of resurgence in 81 with the election of. of Mitterrand, but very quickly um, the 80s became quite um, sad, really sad years with the um, with the rise of um, triumphal uh, liberalism, um, which was a global phenomenon. But um, yes, it's true that uh, uh, consumerism kind of came along at the same time as 68, and there was a kind of um, conversion of um, you know from wanting ideals to wanting consumer goods. Um, so there was an, an appetite for things. Um, um, but you have to realize that in my book, I don't condemn it. There is no judgment. It wasn't written to judge. Um, it's really written to, to how, you know, how we felt, how we experienced, mostly how I experienced history. Um, that's really what it's about. Of course, you can kind of, you can glimpse little um, political preferences, but it really wasn't that. I really didn't write it to judge. That's, um, that's exactly how it came across to me. And I think um, we're going to hear a second reading from Alison in a moment, which I think really captures that. Um, because certainly there's no um, judgment. And certainly, as you say, we see this perhaps political preferences. But we also see, or at least I also saw, an affection for the people you were writing about and also their their contradictions and perhaps their their weaknesses and i think as a reader one of the most um powerful effects um that your book has is to reflect back upon ourselves the um our own weaknesses and our own contradictions the way we interact with social movements and history without this sense of judgment Oui. <laughs> I recognize that wasn't a question. <laughs> um, let's uh, invite Alison Strayer back up to read uh, a second uh, extract from the years. Uh, Alison, maybe I can let you just give, introduce the context. Yes, it's, uh, in the center of this uh, excerpt, there is uh, another uh, collective meal, but it's quite different from the one uh, we read before. Uh, it's in 1973. And, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just go into it. Um, individuals made the revolution to measure according to their age, occupation, social class, interests, and old feelings of guilt. People reluctantly obeyed the calls to party and enjoy themselves, to enlighten themselves, for one must not die stupid. 
Short of leaving everything to live in the country, a plan constantly postponed, but sur- surely, surely to be realized one day, those most hungry for regeneration spent holidays in remote villages in hostile landscapes. They disdained the beaches where you tan stupid, and the home provinces flat and disfigured by industrialization. On the other hand, they credited with authenticity poor farmers in arid lands unchanged for centuries. Those who wanted to make history admired nothing so much as its erasure through the return of seasons and the immutability of gestures, and from these same farmers bought an old hut for a song. Or they spent their holidays in an eastern bloc country, in the grey streets with shattered pavements, among the state-run shops with their penurious no-name stock, wrapped in coarse grey paper, under naked bulbs dangling from the ceilings of apartments lit only at night, they felt they were back in the slow and graceless post-war world of consummate lack. It was a sweet and inexpressible feeling, yet they never would have wanted to live there. They brought back embroidered blouses, and rocky. They wanted the world to always have countries devoid of progress, to take them back in time this way. And this is the dinner scene. In the early 1970s, on summer evenings, when the air was heady with the aromas of dry earth, thyme, brochettes, and ratatouille, one couldn't forget the vegetarians, strangers gathered around a big farm table bought from a bric-a-brac trader for barely a thousand francs. The Parisians revamping the house next door, backpackers, hiking and silk painting enthusiasts, couples with and without children, shaggy men, feral teenage girls, mature women in Indian dresses, reticent at first despite the familiar too, struck up conversations on colour additives and hormones in food, sexology and body work, anti-gymnastics, the Mézières technique, the Roger method, yoga, Le Bois' birth without violence, homeopathy and soya, autogestion, lip and René Dumont. They wondered if it was preferable to send children to school or to school them at home, whether Ajax scouring powder was toxic, yoga and group therapy useful, a two-hour workday utopian, and if women should demand equality with men or equality within difference, within difference. They reviewed the best ways to eat, be born, raise children, treat illness, teach, live in harmony with oneself and others, with nature, and how to escape society. How to express oneself with pottery, weaving, guitar, jewellery, theatre, and writing. A vague and immense desire to create was in the air. Everyone claimed to be devoted to an artistic activity, or planned to be. All activities were equal, they agreed, and instead of painting or playing the flute, One could always create oneself through psychoanalysis. The children were put to bed in the same room and ordered for the sake of form not to turn the place into a pigsty. They wrecked havoc with unbridled joy while the adults drank the moonshine brought by the farmer next door. He'd been invited for the apéro only. And talk moved towards brooding sexual questions. Were we straight or gay? The first orgasm. Confessions. The feral girl declared... I love to shit. <laughs> Together on that summer evening, those unrelated individuals cut adrift from family meals and their loathsome rituals had the exhilarating sense of opening to the world in all its diversity, as if they were teenagers again. No one thought of bringing up the war, or Auschwitz and the camps, or the troubles in Algeria, case closed. Only Hiroshima and the nuclear f- future. Between centuries of peasant life, whose presence one sensed in the fragrant breeze of the Garrigue, and that night in August 73, nothing had changed. Someone started playing the guitar, singing Maxime Le Forestier's Comme un arbre dans la ville, the Quilapayens Duerme Negrito. The others listened, eyes lowered. They would bed down at random on cots in the former silkworm farm, unsure of whether to make love with the neighbor to the right or the neighbor to the left or with no one at all. Before deciding, they were overcome with sleep, euphoric and reassured as to the value of the lifestyle they'd paraded for each other all evening, so far removed from that of the Neanderthals crammed into the campsites down at Merlin-Plage.
Now, I'm going to vacate my seat because we're going to conclude this evening, um, as I said uh, during my introduction, with a little discussion about the arrival of Annie's work in English. So we're going to ask Dan Simon, um, Annie's American publisher, to, um, to come to the stage. Um, I suppose concerning the translations in English, and I'd like to speak, pose this to Annie first of all, when you were first approached about your works coming out in English, when you first knew they were going to come out in English, how did you react? How, how did you feel about Americans and English people being able to read your work? Did you have a sense that they would uh, understand it? <laughs> Tout d'abord, j'étais euh, très heureuse, <rire> voilà, parce que, disons que même si euh, j'ai l'air de ne pas comprendre du tout l'anglais, euh, <rire> j'en ai quand même fait beaucoup, et, et je le lis. Et donc, c'était euh, un élargissement pour moi euh, qui, était, euh, qui était extrêmement important, bien sûr. Euh, et il y a voilà un souvenir que je vous livre, c'est que euh, j'étais euh, au père euh, en Angleterre euh, en 1960 et euh, pendant six mois et euh, en fait c'est là que j'ai commencé à vouloir écrire mmh. que j'ai eu l'idée euh, donc euh, de, de, de que j'allais écrire mmh. voilà et que je, idée que je n'avais jamais eu avant je suis pas précoce <rire> donc euh, voilà donc c'est c'était une sorte bien sûr de de quelque chose de très profond pour moi voilà et mais je je je, je pensais enfin euh, nous avons quand même des, des une certaine proximité je veux dire avec euh, avec le, les États-Unis et l'Angleterre donc euh, j'avais une forme de confiance bien sûr dans la réception je sais cependant euh, qu'il y a des livres qui ont euh, qui, qui ont provoqué euh, aux États-Unis une forme aux États-Unis hein, une, une forme de d'incompréhension mm -hmm. je pense à un livre comme euh, Passion simple simple passion first of all I was very happy <laughs> um, uh, it's really um it's a sort of expansion that um, it means uh, a lot to me. And even though I might seem like I don't understand any English, actually, I, I used to speak it a lot and I read in English. Um, I'll just, um, I'll give you a, a memory of mine, actually, when I was an au pair in um, England in 1960. And it was at that moment that I um, started to want to write. I'd never thought about writing before. So it was um, actually very profound for me to be published in English. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very precocious but um, I think there is a certain closeness between you know, between um, France and the US and, and England and so I, I was confident that I would be understood although in the US apparently some um, books um, created some incomprehension like um, Simple Passion mm. for example. Je voudrais quand même dire que ce n'est pas l'Angleterre qui a commencé à, à me traduire. Ouais. <rire> c'est euh, Dan euh, Simon qui est ici et qui euh, a euh, vraiment euh, désiré euh, me traduire. Et euh, voilà, donc euh, euh, c'était quand même un petit peu surprenant pour moi. <rire> I'd just like to add that it wasn't um, England who um, wanted to translate me in the first place. It was really Dan and Simon who were here tonight, and um, so it was. It was quite. Um, it was quite a surprise for me, actually. So Dan, let's talk about your discovery of Annie, your and your decision to to bring her uh, to to English speakers. What was it? Well, firstly, could you could tell us a little bit about the context of your discovery and tell us what about what it was about her work that really. Uh, made you think that it would appeal to Americans and Anglophones generally? I just have to say, I think the reason that Annie mentioned Passion Sap, it's the one book we were talking earlier that probably was translated with the wrong title because Simple Passion, which is how we published it, is not really a good translation of of Passion Sap, as Annie reminded me this afternoon. Um, <laughs> but I... Gosh... Um, and I didn't know what Adam was going to ask. Uh, so what I remember um, 
of the beginning. First of all, Annie's books, The Years is an exception. It's a long book, but Annie's uh, books that she kind of became uh, famous for originally and that we originally translated books like Infame uh, and La Place are breathtakingly short. And one of the things about these books that's mysterious is that a book that's so short in terms of the word count can have such impact. Um, and so that was really a wonderful thing was these kind of bullets um, in book form. I can't think of another uh, literary author who writes books of such substance that are so short. And, and I, do, I don't remember everything because it was a long time ago, but I do remember that we committed to several books. And concerning the, um, the translation itself, because one thing that I find with Annie Erno's work is that there is a, let's say, a deceptive simplicity to the language. Um, I think when, when you first pick them up, uh, at least to me as an English reader uh, who's reading in French, which is not my native tongue, I, it, I feel like I'm going to understand them quite easily. Whereas when I then make my way through them, I realize there's a lot of nuance to the language and there's a lot of references which require either research or require more thought than I expected. Um, could you just talk a little bit about getting the, finding the right translators and making sure that the, the English versions were faithful to, to the French? It's true. Um, that's a funny thing that there's lots of very French detail um, and then at the same time, Annie's sentences are, you know, it, in a kind of lingua franca, they are um, uh, stylistically precise and perfect, but it's a French style that is unusual uh, in the context of French literature, and her sentences have a kind of directness um, and a momentum um, that is, I don't know if there's another French writer that they would remind you of in whatever language, but certainly Joseph Conrad, mm -hmm. for example, you know, who's not initially an English speaker, but is one of the great English stylists, of course. Um, and, you know, so the, her sentences are... Um, uh, it's not an obvious thing to understand. I was thinking about it, not knowing what you were going to ask, but I was thinking about uh, this today. And you could speak of a literature of fact. You know, it's statement of fact, statement of fact. It's kind of painterly accruing fact after fact, and you get emotional contact, emotional uh, content uh, through a kind of... Um, uh, statement of fact, statement of fact. Uh, an interesting um, anecdote uh, or tidbit is that Annie uh, would never let us call her books fiction or nonfiction, which for a publisher is really a challenge. Um, so, you know, the booksellers and the salespeople want to know, you know, is this going to go with fiction or is it going to go... Um, with nonfiction, and if you look at our editions, we never say fiction or nonfiction. Um, and I think Anise Project has evolved, but it's always been um, like she was speaking so beautifully of, you know, earlier this kind of um, uh, collectivity and. Um, um, something that is kind of suprapersonal, if you can say that. And um, Annie, early said you read in English. Um, have you read the translations of your works? Did you get involved in them? And is it unusual for you to hear your voice in, an, in a language that is not your own? Um, oui, j'ai participé à participer. J'ai euh, lu de très près euh, de, de, les traductions de mes livres courts. <rire> euh, donc, euh, La Place, Une Femme, euh, Passion Simple, euh, L'Événement. Euh, Mais euh, pour, euh, pour les années, euh, euh, je dois dire que je me sentais là euh, tout à fait incompétente de toute façon et je n'aurais pas 
euh, c'était de toute manière je, moi je ne cherche pas à intervenir euh, il y avait une demande de la part de, de, de la traductrice de mes livres courts et, euh, auquel, à laquelle je, je, je répondais mais je ne, je, ne, je ne me sens pas capable d'interférer quand même dans, dans la traduction euh, voilà. et, et donc je suis très heureuse d'avoir lu pas, pas complètement euh, la traduction des années par Alison Schreier qui est euh, voilà qui est, euh, je crois une, une très une remarquable traduction euh, d'après mm -hmm. tout le monde <rire> voilà um, oh sorry <laughs> so, sorry I'll save to you um, yes yeah, so I um, I've read my my shorter books in in translation um, uh, Uh, a man's place, um, a woman's simple passion, the happening, um, and um, but I I wouldn't I feel you know competent to sort of interfere in the in the translation with the, the translator of my shorter books um, sort of you know solicited me and wanted m me to be involved in a certain way, but um, I would never think of of actually interfering. So I was very I was very happy to read. I haven't still read it entirely, but they um, read the wonderful translation of um, the years, which um, is really um, a really unremarkable work according to everybody. <laughs> We are going to have to uh, finish quite soon, but um, I'd just like to, uh, Dan, just ask you one final question concerning the, um, the years specifically and the, the choice, uh, because it's a, it's a book which is populated with a certain number of footnotes, um, which is not necessarily, which is always a choice on the part of the translator, in fact, to sort of whether they take the reader out of the text to explain something or whether they try to find an equivalent in, the, in the, the destination language, but which is perhaps going to lose some of the detail or lose some of the, the nuance of the original. Um, could you just talk a little bit about, uh, from a, and maybe Alison as well, the, the decisions both as a translator and as an editor to, in, to put a certain number of footnotes in the years? I think I tended to lard the text with footnotes and, and I think you you restrain me <laughs> we we did discuss it a fair bit yeah uh, one by one sometimes um, uh, and some things are guessable too for in in English and so uh, I think that they are to be avoided I mean I always find them interesting but but I'm, but I know that they take away from the reading so I think I tended to put more in than than ended up being Yes, sometimes I think what we were able to do is blend what could have been a footnote into the translation itself, you know. I just want to say, um, you know, since Annie is in a sense one of the kind of pioneers of what's now called autofiction, it's just I think what one is contemplating in reading Annie is a autofiction Um, which has become such a trendy term, but that is not. But that is kind of. I won't say egoless, but certainly is in search of a kind of egolessness. Whereas we've seen autofiction kind of go in the other direction. But Ani really represents something contrary, uh, and you know, just as an aspiration. You know that when she talks about the collectivity and you know, as an aspiration, it's so wonderful. You know, I just wanted to get that in. <laughs> And I should add, just concerning the footnotes as well, I don't believe in any way they take you out of the text as a reader. In fact, I think they kind of enrich the experience because there are so many things which would lose so much if, um, if they hadn't been included. Um, that is, unfortunately, all we've got time for tonight, um, at least for the, the formal conversational part of the evening. Um, Annie will be signing books in... Uh, our back room there in our children's section um, I, there are a lot of you so I will ask you to form as orderly a queue as possible um, we have uh, editions of the years available both in the Seven Stories edition and the Fitzcarraldo edition which is the American edition and the British edition we also have several of Annie's uh, backlist from uh, Seven Stories as well as copies of her, uh, her works in French so there's plenty available for you at the till concerning 
queuing for signing, what we're going to ask you to do is to queue up round here. It will take you back there and the queue will begin just at the back here, OK? Um, but please join me one more time in saying thank you to Dan Simon, of course, to Alison Strayer, to our heroic interpreter, Alice Heathwood. <laughs> To Jacques Testard, the editor of Fitzcarraldo Editions, the, the UK publisher of Annie's work. And of course, give it up one more time for Annie Erno. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>